Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1927 film Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? I'm doing fine, Sam. I'm uh, tempted to mouth wordlessly, but our listeners wouldn't know that. So uh, <laughs> I guess right. I will answer. <laughs> but maybe a great horn could sound every time you open your mouth. Um, I'm going to say something. This is our, our 101st film, and I'm going to say something I think I've never said at the top of one of our movies, which is uh, if you haven't seen this movie, uh, we're going to spoil it, and you should stop listening to this and go watch it. Because... <laughs> Honestly, this movie has to be seen, and we are going to talk about things that will ruin the experience of watching this movie if you don't know anything about it. It is free on, there are multiple versions of this free on YouTube. Stop what you're listening to if you haven't seen this. Go watch it. It's an hour and a half, and then come back for the conversation. Um, I can't promise the conversation will be as great as the movie, but <laughs> this one, I'm a little nervous to talk about it because I don't know if I'm capable of conveying my enthusiasm for this movie so but let, 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 let's jump into it Barrett what is your history with this film is this something you had seen before no this is this is one of those um shameful gaps in my film education it's a film I've known about for years and because uh, as you mentioned earlier last week Sam you know you off a lot of the greatest movie lists will include Sunrise whether it's an American as an American movie or a national film so I've always been aware of it I, I guess you know I I've taken a while to warm to silent films I think this is our fourth silent film if I'm mm -hmm. counting right so uh, and I just realized you know how can how can we talk about great films and not and not see this film so this is my first time watching it as well all right did you know anything about this movie before you watched it I, I knew about specific scenes, you know, okay. I, I knew that you couldn't talk about this film without the trolley ride. Um, okay. And I had seen still images. I mean, so the film had a kind of, it's a little bit like what we talked about with Nosferatu in a way. It's like, it, it, uh, I'd seen the image of the farmer in the field, in, in the fog with the moon in the background. Uh, so, so there was an iconography associated with the film, even though I had actually never, never seen it. Okay. Did you have any expectations going into this? Yes, I did. Um, and the film both met them and, ex and, and exceeded them. Um, I had expectations of the, uh, of a melodramatic plot. What I did not expect was how quickly the movie turns to a different tone and then back again, which was a long argument I had with my son about how successful that is. Um, I don't think I was fully aware of all the technological things that Murnau pulled off about how almost Citizen Kane-like this is in the way that it establishes techniques uh, that continue to influence uh, movie makers for, for generations, really. And I, I guess I, I hadn't thought of it as that revolutionary. I thought of it as a masterpiece, but I didn't think of it as a film that kind of had this resonance uh, through the years. Wow. It's like you're reading from my notes, just hearing you talk. So there's three things. I knew nothing. There's three things I knew going into this. I knew that F.W. Murnau made this and I knew he made Nosferatu. So that sort of was the first thing that was like, okay, so I feel like I know him. I saw that movie. That's not necessarily a helpful setup for this. <laughs> it is in some ways, but not in the ways I expected. I knew that it was supposed to be great. So this is number five on the sight and sound li critics list. So I was like, okay, well, and, and, and the, the thought when we did uh, Nosferatu, everything I kept reading said like, you know, Murnau is, is his greatest film is Sunrise. And I thought, well, how is Nosferatu not his greatest film? So, so I knew, okay, people hold this in high regard. The best part is that somewhere before I watched this, as I was getting ready, it might've even been the, the description of the, the plot description before I clicked play. Mercifully, the plot description was, I think, essentially this a man's mistress convinces him to kill his wife. Well, <laughs> I thought that's the movie I was going to watch. Uh, I'm like, okay, okay this is going to be like a murder plot, maybe like a perfect murder movie or something like that. What I was not prepared for, I made a list. I'm going to echo some of the things you said, but I made a list of things that I was not prepared for. I was not prepared for this to be a special effects movie. Mm -hmm. And this is so heavily a special effects movie. Um, and I was blown away by that. Uh, I wasn't, expecting the plot I thought I was going to be watching to be resolved in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't expecting the second act of this movie at all. The shifts in tone and setting and story. And I will say the emotional resonance uh, that that had. And, and we'll, we'll get to this as we talk through it. But uh, this movie hit me 
in really, really, uh, in ways I, even as I was watching it, I didn't expect it to, to hit me in certain ways. I wasn't expecting the third act of this film mm-hmm. because it, it tricks you into forgetting where it starts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wasn't expecting the kind of complexity or ambiguity or like mythic aspect of this film that it is not or, or mythic or allegorical. I'm not sure what the right word is, but, but he, you know, he even, he even tells you that from the opening title card that this is not going to be uh, a typical. Well, it is going to be a typical story in some ways, but it's also going to be a story that is not a specific story. This is a, a general kind of story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what it ends up being is this movie is, is like a high wire act that they pull off. There's so many ways this thing could and should go wrong. And even when I think about it, even if I was reading one review and they said, I'm embarrassed to write a plot description of this because if you put it on paper, it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> and it's true. Like if, if, if we were to just, if you were to just tell somebody the story, they would think this is what, what are you talking about? So I was utterly blown away by this movie. <laughs> Yeah, in, in a way, you know, the, the simplicity of, of the plot is kind of part of the point of the film, right? That it is, I mean, it, it's very rare to be successful when you start when you start out trying to make something that will be, quote, universal. So I, so I have to say that when the film starts with that, I, I got a little suspicious. I thought, you know, to try to make something universal usually ends up not actually working. I mean, uh, honestly, that, that feels like Babe Ruth pointing to the stands a little bit. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um but 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 the way it pulls off the universality because you know um it's it's really hard when you look when you look at the film it's like well when is it set that's kind of a little hard to say right because if you just look at the village it could be in the 19th century and then and then they go to the city and you've got cars well that's the 1920s but then they go to what one critic says is called luna park i'm not sure it's ever named in the film but luna park and my son and I were watching this film together and he turned to me, he said, what is this place? It's like, is it a circus? Is it an amusement park? Is it a cafe? Um, is it a carnival? It's, it's, it's just kind of all of those things. And so you're, now you realize you're in a kind of a timeless all, sort of futuristic world. So he, do, he does. And, and then, of course, the fact that you have one of the strengths of silent films is the fact that you have no dialogue. So you don't have to worry about what particular language is being spoken. In fact, in one in one of Murnau's earlier films, he actually had inter, intertitles in Esperanto, uh, in, in an effort to be sort of quite universal. So I think the fact that we don't know what language they speak. I mean, obviously we get intertitles in English, but otherwise we don't know. So all those things I think actually help to universalize the film, maybe in a way that a talkie actually couldn't couldn't quite do. Well, and I would also say another, I mean, you talked about the different spaces. Another thing that if you think about it is so strange about where this is set is it starts by making you feel like there is this great distance between the city and the country. (laughs) And it seems like it's just across the lake, across the lake and a magic train ride. And you are in an entirely different world. Um, Yeah, my son son said that to me. He said, what is the point of that long montage? It just seems like it's pretty close. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, But 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 that also, uh, I mean, it talks about the rift between these two worlds, whether they're right next to each other because this is all i mean that also makes it kind of universal i mean in some ways there can't be a greater distance between you and your neighbor in terms mm-hmm. of like the the drama of your life playing out and the drama of their life playing out so even that's very effective and uh, yeah i i um so i want to talk about this movie in two ways uh, maybe we can start with the kind of technical effects stuff because because that that has to be talked about i wasn't what I loved about this movie is I was thinking about, okay, 1927, they don't have the, I mean, they don't have the technology. Obviously we have today, you know, you watch a movie today and and you're, it's hard to be blown away by an effect because anything's, I mean, you could do anything. I mean, you and I could almost do anything with, if you have a, you know, Adobe premiere, you can kind of do whatever you want, you know? And, and I'm thinking about 1927, and I read a little bit more about this. And um, in the Roger Ebert review, I don't know, did you read his review? Um, yeah. His was mostly, in some ways, a review of the commentary track mm-hmm. on this film from a um, special effects artist breaking down how they made this film. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, that's actually one of the things that I want to seek out now is like, that sounds like a great, like a great commentary, you know, about this that I ended up watching this thinking like, I don't 
I don't I didn't know they had the ability to do these things in 1927. And it sounds like they were inventing. They were inventing a lot of this stuff, which, you know, you already said this, but um, in my notes, I wrote, it feels like watching Citizen Kane. It's like I. They're doing things that I assume either hadn't been done or had barely been done, and they're doing this in uh, to such a large degree. They're doing some of these things. So um, we can talk about some of these. Uh, we, you know, we have these uh, multiple times. He goes to these shots where we're layering, mm-hmm. we're layering visual things together, which again is easy to do with the computer. Um, I read about how they did this, mm-hmm. and they. Mm-hmm. Even those shots are done in camera. In camera, yeah. Yeah, so they were covering up parts of the mm-hmm. parts of the lens so that wouldn't be exposed, and then they would reshoot on that film and mm-hmm. cover up the other parts of the lens, which sounds like such a such <laughs> a pain to do. And and you know, and they do it multiple times to the point where like, man, is it worth it? Is it worth it to put all that in? And like, imagine if you mess the shot up. You know, <laughs> you you have to go. I I just I don't actually even understand entirely like. Like the um, how gutsy it is to attempt that stuff, but the effect you get. I mean, the I think the the first time it really hit me was when the man and the the woman of the city are lying kind of in the swamp, looking up at the mm-hmm. kind of dream image of the city, and mm-hmm. we actually have two different shots up above them in the sky, and then it 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 bleeds into these you know these kind of multiple shots together, and I just think how complicated that would be even to think of it. But then, how they pulled it off is is stunning. It's it's actually and it's it's an interesting development. We've talked a little bit about expressionism and kind of the subjective camera. So it's kind of an interesting development of that, where the camera becomes uh, a lens into the unconscious or the, or the subconscious. You know, and one thing I will say about the special effects, and as you observed, you know, the time consuming nature of doing that, and and potentially the costliness of doing it. Suppose you try it and it doesn't work if the camera jams and whatever. Um, when Murnau was brought to the U.S. by William Fox, he hired him right about the time The Last Laugh came out in Germany. He basically gave him carte blanche. Um, the, the, the film had an enormous budget, didn't, didn't make any money, of course. But, you know, so Murnau basically could do it. <laughs> this is another parallel to Citizen Kane, right? I mean, Mur- Murnau, like Wells doing Citizen Kane, could basically do anything he wanted. Uh, and he was kind of a perfectionist. Uh, and he did. But the other thing that's interesting about this film, and, and some people you know, identify it as kind of the apex of, of the silence, like the greatest of the silent films. And we previously saw another one devised for the title, which is City Lights. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about this film, that special effect you mentioned, that tracking effect uh, when he's going through, when they're walking through the, the swamp. Um, that was achieved by, you know, hanging the camera platform because it's all in studio. And that's the other thing about it's interesting about this film is the blend of studio and exterior. It's hard to tell when you're actually outside and when you're when you're inside. Um, but one of the ironies of the move to to sound is the move to sound made films much more static uh, because they didn't have an easy way to move cameras and microphones a- a- around. And we already saw that parodied, as you recall, Singing in the Rain, right, where she has to stand right by the mic and she can't move. So one of the interesting things about silent films uh, visually is by the time they come to an end, they actually are much more interesting, much more inventive than the early sound films are because they don't have to worry about the sound. All they all they need to do is, is move the camera and then they can add the sound on the soundtrack later on. And I think that's, you know, kind of beauty. The, the mobile camera in this uh in this in this film is is fantastic yeah i was i was reading uh carl struss one of the one of the cinematographers had a um had purchased a a a motorized camera which Mm -hmm. still they were using more mostly crank cameras so even that made it hard to move the camera because you have to move the camera person with them but he had a motorized one and that's how they they allow the camera to because it does float around you know Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel handheld it also doesn't feel like it's on a track the way i mean that's why a tracking shot is called a tracking shot is it you have a dolly on a track but but that they could actually make the camera you know like you said put it on a platform and swing that platform mm-hmm. around um because they were they were added a, a cutting edge of technology um in terms of that um I, I mean this this movie has some some amazing amazing tracking shots uh in it i mean this is one of the things when you read about it uh there's the, the the one. I mean, the one that everybody writes about is the one you were mentioning, like where it, where the man is walking through the swamp and it mm-hmm. 
it sort of moves at first it's tracking with him and then it moves away from him and it feels like we're just walking through and then it opens up to the 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 moonlit um shot of the of the woman waiting for him um but there is something there is something about like the those those shots that are so smooth the the one that blew me away was the the when they're on the train going to the city Mm -hmm. there's something uh, there's something just stunning about that shot and and all i can think of is there's something so smooth about how it moves and then when they get out into the city you get the the traffic tracking shots where 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 he's uh where the woman is still kind of or the wife is still kind of running away from him and he's trying to you know help her through the traffic and again the uh the choreography of of the Mm -hmm. cars and the horses and the people um that those things are just uh, are, are just kind of amazing uh, in terms of that. The, there is one shot that I didn't understand, and it's um, I think it's after I think it's after they get their photo taken, mm-hmm. and there's a shot where they're walking through the street, and it ends in the big traffic jam. Mm-hmm. But like it looks like what we would call like a green screen shot because he changes the background, and it's clear. I mean, it's clear it's it's imperfect. You can tell that they're superimposed over it. I have no idea. I nobody wrote about that shot, and I have mm-hmm. no idea how they did that because I didn't think that 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 type of technology would have been there. But again, that's an ambitious thing where where it doesn't entirely work, mm-hmm. but you can tell they're going for this huge effect where you have these two people walking and we're changing the background, and then because you're again you're into their um, into their minds and what they're picturing is this idyllic kind of garden that they're walking through and then they're kind of woken back up by the traffic jam that they're creating. Yeah. I mean, it, it looks a little bit like rear projection, but I'm not, I'm not really sure what's going on in that scene. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, a couple other things. I mean, he there, and this goes back to some of that uh, multiple exposure thing, but two shots that are, that are amazing. One is as the man is contemplating whether he's going to kill his wife, and we get the uh, the multiple like ghostly woman of the city kind of mm-hmm. having her arms around him. Uh, that was just yes. Again, even the framing of a shot like that is so complex and complicated, um, and 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 that's really amazing. And then right before that, when the man goes to bed the night that she sort of throws that plot idea out there, and he's lying in bed, and it, and I meaning it really, I think, is just a very slow fade into water. But you get the effect of he is sleepless in bed, imagining himself about to drown in this water. And it's again, that's that's not a complicated effect compared to some of these other things. But mm-hmm. that is still that is also such a such a stunning shot. Yeah, I also like kind of to go along with that. I like the effect that um, the, the intertidal effect when she when the woman from the city suggested that he that, she, that he drowned the wife, right? And there's a couple different things that happen there. You know, she says, "What what if she?" And then the word drowned, right, kind of comes into focus. And then, and then the whole intertidal swirls and go and go, and goes down the drain. I, I mean, it's just, it's a little touch, but it's, and I have no idea what it took to invent that, but it just, it's, it's so, such an interesting kind of imit. It's like, almost like the verbal equivalent of an imitative fallacy, right? Where the, where the words are actually imitating uh, the thought. I, I thought that it's a brilliant little piece and he doesn't, he doesn't overdo it. He doesn't do it again, but he does it there. And it just, it's beautiful. Well, and even the first part of that, and again, I'm not as versed in silent film to know if that, but, it, but I don't remember seeing that. And the other things we, we looked at where you would see a title card and then it would cut away and it would come back and you'd see the title card. And then there would be more text on that mm-hmm. same title card, yeah. Yeah. you know? So, so it gave you this effect of like, there's this sentence hanging out there. And then we get that. So he does that twice, but yeah, but then like the animated title card is uh, again, it's just one of those, you know, we're going to, we're going to do something. I mean, I don't know. I didn't read contemporary reviews of this. I know it was not a commercially successful film, but I don't know how people could not have been blown away by what they saw on the screen. Yeah. I mean, my, you know, my understanding is that the, the critical reception was very, was very good. Um, and obviously, it got one of the first Academy Awards. Um, they kind of gave two Academy Awards for. for uh, they kind of did the whole period from twenty seven to twenty eight. Gave the awards in twenty nine, uh, and uh, so William Wellman's Wings is often cited as the first Oscar winner. But in fact, it shared the honor with with Sunrise. And as I said earlier, you know, when William Fox brought uh, Murnau to Hollywood, uh, part of his goal was to kind of raise the. Um, 
raise the uh, artistic level and reputation of Hollywood films. And Murnau was just one of many, you know, influential German directors that came to Hollywood at the time, Fritz Lang, uh, Ernst Lubitsch, um, uh, Eric von Stroheim. You know, these are all people that come in with this kind of European reputation. And so um, I don't know whether people stayed away from Sunrise because they thought it was going to be too artsy or because, you know, uh, talkies had made their debut so they could go see the jazz singer uh which is not really a, predict a particularly good film uh but it had dialogue in it actually not even a lot of dialogue um but anyway so that that may, that may have been part of the issue that people just yeah. weren't flocking to the true silence anymore and, and we and we should actually talk about the the sound in this film because this mm -hmm. is not this is uh this is not a silent film in the same way you know other things we 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 had talked about because this actually has sound on film so there, this has a, a score to it yeah. it has sound effects there is actually talking in this movie if you pay attention at the traffic jam you hear voices mm -hmm. um saying you know like kind of yelling at them you never hear any of the, the characters themselves talk one of the things that i loved about the, the way that that what what this allowed them to do with music is you also get overlapping music mm -hmm. so you get the uh, at the club there's a point where you get the diegetic music of the like nightclub that they're at but then you still get the orchestral score of like the love song between the two of them and you and those things are just layered over each other um which I which is a sort of another way to think about how to what is the emotions of this moment there is the real sound and then there is the the song of the two humans between them, maybe, or something like, I, 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 the, this, this has great sound design to it for being a silent film. Yeah. It's almost operatic in that, in that sense, you know, it, it makes me think again, that the, uh, the sound equivalent is overlapping dialogue, right. And, and over, overlapping dialogue, you can sometimes you end up losing some of the words, whereas with overlapping sound, you can kind of get both. Um, it makes me think about there's, there's a scene in, uh, in uh, Amadeus where, Mozart is explaining exactly what he's doing with all these various uh, uh, musical voices. And so this film is kind of doing that as well. And it's another example of how, as one, crit as one reader, uh, critic I read put it, the film succeeds not despite the lack of sound, but because of the lack of sound. But really more precisely, the lack of dialogue, which as you pointed out, Sam, it does in fact have a soundtrack. And the soundtrack is, is very expressive, especially... Uh, at, at the end, when uh, the voice of the horn becomes the voice of the uh, of, of the man, uh, and even the baby uh, echoing the man toward, towards the end, so there's a lot of real. And so it's a that subtitle, "A Song of Two Humans," right? That's not that's not arbitrarily chosen. That's that's really part of what you actually get. It's it's kind of a musical in that sense. Well, and it uses it uses sound it sparingly in interesting ways, like. Um, so in the, in the first act of the movie, when the man goes into the barn and he's plotting and, and it's so tense and there's a little like jump scare when the horse comes in and there's, there's like a clatter and it's, a, it's, it might be the first time that you hear a, a diegetic piece of sound, something that's mm -hmm. actually coming from there. And it is this startling moment and it's just that the horse came in, but, it, but it, it, it touches on how tense he is in that moment thinking about what he's about to do um so so it employs sound in really i think in really interesting ways um so we think about the the the, the story of this movie this has really three distinct acts in it um so the first act is the kind of you know dark romance affair murder plot um first thing that hit me was how matter of fact the plan is that the woman just <laughs> says what if she drowned <laughs> Uh, and, 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 and that, that it's not, it's not even like there's, it's, it's not romantic. It's, it's sort of like sell your farm, come with me, kill your wife. And, and, uh, and, and th so there's this sense where like, she is attractive to him, but it's, but it's not like a, it doesn't feel like love in the way we're going to see love in this movie later on. And I think that's really, uh, that's really effective. And I also love the way that like, <sighs> I don't like stories where, where you have people like this who are, you know, I think these farmers are relatively poor people relative to some of the city folk. Um, and it doesn't lay too heavy on the money concerns, but they do see this early about how he's like, how money, how he's having to go to money lenders in order to kind of, um, uh, afford the life he has with this mistress. And then later on in the movie, you know, we see him paying for things and he always has money until the very end. 
And then the wife has money. So like it seeds some of those things without making that be like the central kind of pathetic point to the, to the story. So, um, yeah. I, uh, and I, and then, and then the other thing is I love the way, uh, George O'Brien changes physically changes in this movie. So for this first act, I mean, he walks around like Frankenstein's monster. Like he, 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 he like, you know, he kind of trudges around and he seems like he seems like a monster kind of figure um, to the point where I read that he actually wore like ankle weights. So he would walk differently yep. during this part of the movie. So a couple of things that you touched on that I want to I want to follow up on, Sam. One is, um, I don't know, it seems though I we never can have a podcast. So I mentioned film noir at some point. So I have to say that I think this film is proto film noir. Uh, in the setup with with the, with the woman from the city. By the way, I've, I've never quite understood why the woman from the city is interested in a yokel like this, except I, I guess she figures there's money to be gotten from selling the farm. Um, but the money thing really, it, it, was a, it was a place where I really had to suspend my disbelief because they're in the city, which is a really expensive place. And he just kind of keeps shelling out and shelling out. And as you said, ultimately he runs out of money. Um, but I, I, that, that I was a little bit, that was a place where I had to suspend some disbelief. Um, but I love his transformation as you observe. Yes, he wore lead, lead, lead weights in his shoes, but you know, it's the shaving scene, right? That, that, and, and it made me think about other shaving scenes that we've seen, right? We had a shaving scene in my darling Clementine at the, the barber shop is kind of this key area for social negotiation. Uh, same thing happens, of course, in Scarface. So it's kind of nice to add another, uh, another, another shaving scene to our repertoire. Uh, and of course, just to mention that, that barbershop, salon, whatever it is, it's, it's, it's huge, right? It, it's another one of these very strange spaces. And I don't know if they had anything that looked like that in the 1920s or if it's just another one of Murnau's uh, fantastic inventions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and there, there's a couple other um, kind of set moments that, are, that, 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 that kind of blow me away. Going back to the money thing, um, here's why it doesn't bother me. Because I... <laughs> Ultimately, when I got to the end of this, I think about the, so we, we can kind of move into act two here. Um, I think about the day that they have in act two, the day the man and his wife have, and it reminds me of the kind of days, perfect days you sometimes have, or at least how you perceive them to be perfect days when you're first like falling in love or when you're newly married and there are certain moments where you have these days where everything kind of comes together and it feels sort of perfect. But part of being young or, you know, especially when you're newly married is uh, at least, at least for us was like, there were a lot of like, okay, you know, money's tight. We don't have a lot, but on those perfect days, it always seemed like there was enough, you know, like, so I think that's part of the, mm -hmm. the mythic quality of this is like, I'm not interested in hearing about their finances this on this day. <laughs> but but I, but yeah. but it's there. It's there. And every time he pulls that little coin purse out, I'm hoping he has enough to make it through the next thing. Um, one theme that runs through this that I, I watched this movie twice and I didn't track this the second time I watched through because I didn't realize it till about halfway through. But I wish I had mm. is that um, one theme that runs through all three of the acts is the ringing of bells. Yes. And I wish that I had like mm -hmm. cataloged every time that it happens. Yeah. Because when the bell rings, it feels like like that's a like there is something significant about each one of those moments. Um, so like the I think the first time we hear it is as he's about to push off from the boat from the dock, mm -hmm. and he takes this very long pause, looking back as if he's taking account of here is my past, and I am on the precipice of making a choice which will fundamentally change my life. Mm -hmm. And it's like he's wrestling with the different parts of himself, and we hear the bell ring, and he pushes off. But then we obviously throughout the rest of the day, there are these moments where the bell rings, the bell rings right before the storm, the bell rings, obviously in the, you know, the, the, the wedding scene, things yeah. like that. Um, so one of the things that blew me away was this city set. Um, I have to tell you, when I first watched this, I was thinking of other movies we watched, which are, which actually don't match this, which I was like, wow, oh, this feels like like a neo-realist film. They just had got a big city and just started filming. And then I realized this is a huge elaborate set. Uh, so I am clearly fooled by movie magic. I thought this, I, there was no way that this couldn't be just as, cause there's so many people. There's so many people. There's so much movement. Um, 
which we, you were talking about, about, about sets. My favorite set, my favorite shot of this movie um, is when they, f- the first place they go when they get to the city is they go to a restaurant mm-hmm. and the restaurant, the back wall is all glass and behind them is the city in motion. And that had to be such a complicated set of yeah. shots that you just have all these people in cars constantly moving, but that's just the backdrop to the two of them having a conversation. And they do shoot at the opposite sometimes where there's just a wall behind them, but they do a lot with the city in motion behind them. And again, that's just such an ambitious shot that doesn't have to be there, but it just shows the like grand scope of where they are. And I, my hat's off to Murnau for that. That's such a cool looking shot. And I, and I think to me, one of the really mark, uh, 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 remarkable things about the city is that it's actually hospitable. Mm-hmm. You know, I, all, all the experiences they have in the city are really positive, including the fact that, you know, at Luna Park, he gets to become the hero, you know, for, for, for uh, rescuing or grabbing the pig. And so usually when yokels go into the city, the point of that is for the yokels to somehow have, you know, terrible, humbling experiences. Uh, they go into the city with stars in their eyes and discover that this is really an awful place. We got to go back to our farm. But none of that happens. I mean, it's, re- it's really, when you think about the movement of most comedies, because at this point, the films become a comedy, right? <laughs> the movement of most comedies going all the way back to Shakespeare is usually your comic interludes are in the country. Usually you move from city to country to have some kind of restorative experience, then back to the city. This film sets it up the exact opposite. You move from country to city, you have your little idol in the city, and then you go back, you go back to the country. So that's one thing that really struck me about how, how fun the city was. You know, even that car pile up is kind of a, it's a kind of a slapstick, a slapstick moment. And, you know, they, they don't meet any con artists. Uh, there's, there is the guy in the, in the salon that, you know, is kind of trying to hit on her and he, uh, he ends up getting put in his place. But otherwise, the people around them, you know, the photographer is a friendly guy. I mean, the waiter is a friendly guy once they come up with the money. You know, so it's like the city is a rather than being the place of escape and betrayal that the woman from the city portrays it as it becomes a place of renewal and restoration. And that, to me, is really um, an unusual kind of move. Yeah. And 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 um, I love even when they go to the salon, like. I don't know. I tend to think of a salon as like a feminine place and that it's not the wife that gets <laughs> that. I mean, she actually rejects like when he starts to do the, he's going to do something with her hair. And I will say Janet Gaynor's hair is also an amazing special effect. I don't quite understand that helmet of hair that she has, um, but that she rejects that. And it's the husband who's getting, you know, getting the shave and almost getting a manicure. And, and what's great about that scene is in both ways we see a kind of jealousy they have. Like, I, I, I can't quite tell with the manicure thing if she's, if, mm. if the wife has some jealousy towards the woman who's like holding her husband's hand yeah. and looking at it. But definitely the husband has that. And, and it also, you know, points to one of the like darker edges of this movie, which is the man is deeply jealous and violent. He's a violent person. He mm. pulls a knife on somebody. He twice strangle, you know, uh, uh, yeah. almost strangles somebody. He's ready to pick a fight in a moment. Um, so, so like that's always, I think that's always interesting. And that's how good this movie is that you get into this second act and you, you kind of forget that this guy was minutes away from killing his wife. Yeah. And, and like, and, 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 you, and it doesn't, that doesn't somehow break this movie. And again, that's also speaking to, again, the kind of the mythic quality of it, that it's not, it's not a real story in the same way. So I feel like, like you can get away with some of those things, but the weight of those things don't, don't, uh, don't go away. I love the scene with the photographer. I felt like, um, like, are we in a Charlie Chaplin movie all of a sudden? And when the, you know, when, the, when the statue falls and they're, you know, so concerned about finding a head for it. And when you realize the statue never had a head to begin <laughs> with. So, so even that is so low, st- it's high stakes for them, but it's actually low stakes. The photographer just laughs it off and is like, yeah, that's, nothing happened you know and how the photographer the, the the biggest like kind of con thing he does is he sneaks the photograph of them kissing and gives them that photograph as well so like that's actually a beautiful moment instead of something else one of the great things about that scene and it's part of the whole uh, interlude in the city but you know one of the things that we learn at the beginning uh, one of the commentaries is made by other people in the village is that when they were first married 
They were so happy together. They were like children. And so what I love about that scene, the photographers, is they behave just the way a child would if you thought you'd broken something. You know, so we'll set it back up and then we'll put this little, we'll put this ball on top of it with a face on it as though, and he'll never notice that the That's head right. is falling off. It's just, to me, it's such a perfectly childish and childlike thing to do. That, that to me, is what's really important about that city uh, idol is, 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 the, is the idea that they do revert to this kind of childlike um, romance that we've only heard about before. Yeah, and and I mean, and and before that, I mean, the, the one of the first places they go in the city is to that wedding, and when they walk out of the wedding, even the people outside are treating them like the bride and groom, and they sort of look like a bride and groom because she's got a bouquet, and you know, and they even at, when they leave at the end of this day, they refer to it as like this new honeymoon that they've had. Um, you've talked a little bit about the fair. One of the things that I find really interesting is the. Um, Again, this this tension, although it's a light tension, which gets dissolved of like they want to do different things at the fair. Like the man is perfectly happy playing the game, throwing baseballs at the target and the wife keeps pointing to the dance. And it mm -hmm. seems like, OK, is this going to be a point of tension? Because we know that there is this other tension there from the beginning of the movie and that that sort of dissolves by the pig. Uh <laughs> The fact that this movie has the ghost pig and a drunken pig in the middle of it, it's just like, again, like it's, it this movie has absolutely everything in it. Um, I was telling my daughter about, I, 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 she's a big fan of the movie Babe, and I said, okay, this movie has, has a pig like the pig in Babe. What's the funniest thing you could imagine that pig doing? And I kept having her pitch ideas, and I'm like, you still haven't reached as funny as this movie gets with them, especially when the pig knocks over the other bottles to get more wine. <laughs> It's just great. It's it's so funny, and it's not. It doesn't. It's not. It doesn't break the movie at all mm. to do that silly thing. It's like, of course that happens, and then that leads to this hero moment, and then it leads to the dance. And that's exactly um, what my son and I said to each other as we're watching it. This must have inspired Babe Pig in the City. <laughs> yeah, it, well, exactly, because it has some of the absurdity of yes. especially especially Babe Pig in the City. This the yes. second one. Um, and then what? Okay, what I love about the end of this day, like I said, this this. This reminds me of there are days in my life uh, between my wife and I that that are not at all like this day, but they have that sort of quality when we both look back on them as like this oddly perfect day. And the fact that it ends with fireworks, too, you know, mm -hmm. like like and there is something there is something about because uh, I would say one of those perfect days was before we were married. When I was living in Alabama, my wife came down to visit me and we went to um and this is at a time where we didn't have a lot of money and we drove to, uh, to Orlando and went to Disney world for the mm. day. And it's one of those perfect days in our lives. And it also ended with fireworks and we also didn't have a lot of money, but like there was enough kind of thing. <laughs> and so like, so there is something that resonates with me, um, in that. Um, and then it leads to the third act of the movie, which, uh, circles back to some of the tone, the sort of serious tone, as you said, of the, of the, uh, of the first act where we get this sort of tragedy, but then we also get the story of kind of salvation, death and rebirth. We get, you know, the, the death of the wife and then, you know, her, her coming back. Um, I love the effects of the storm, both in the city and on mm -hmm. the boat. Um, again, I, I don't even know on the scale of the city effects. Like that was just stunning to look at. I don't know how they pulled some of that stuff off with wind machines and rain and stuff, but yeah. Yeah, and I know that the uh, the first appearance of the I can't remember why, but the first appearance of blowing up the dust got ruined. Something something happened. Uh, maybe the rain came too soon or something like that. And somebody and they tried to tell Murnau, well, that's okay. We don't really need the dust. And he said, no, no, we have to have the dust. And they had to wait three days uh, so they could re so they could reshoot it. So, but you know, one of the interesting things about the the film it, it's an adaptation of a story. And one of the ways in which Murnau and his scriptwriters deviate from the source is in the source, the husband dies in the, in, in the storm and the wife survives. I found that extremely interesting because one of the arguments that my son and I had about the film is um, he doesn't, my, my son doesn't like the fact that the husband, uh, rather than dying, um, and, and, and the husband trying to save both himself and the wife with the bulrushes, he says, if, if, the, if the husband were really self-sacrificial, he would give all the bulrushes to the wife and, and let himself die. So it was interesting to me when I read that that's what happened in the source story and that Murnau intentionally uh, deviated from that. I thought that was, that was interesting because um, 
I don't think it, I, to me it doesn't work as well for the for the husband to die um, because that's not the point. The point is to have that redemption and that and that restoration. And so it works in my mind. It works perfectly well for them both to survive, but instead to have that period, as you alluded to, when you think she's dead, uh, he thinks she's dead. Um, I'm pretty sure she's not dead, but I'm not. I'm not putting it out of the realm of possibility. I think the well, film has a serious enough tone, so it is possible that she might that she might be dead. And this points to me to one of the things that the film doesn't do a lot with, which mystifies me, and that is the child. Um, I mean, I, 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 you know, I think I could say we we should expect her to survive because of the child, uh, but the film doesn't do as much with the child as I kind of expected it to. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the, the only callback to the child we get while they're in the city is when they're looking at the baby photo yeah. in, the, in the wall, which reminds you that they have, you know, that they that they that they have a child. So you see it at the beginning and, and, and towards the end. Um, yeah, I will say I. I kind of thought she was dead because, mm-hmm. again, by the time you've gone through the journey of this movie, I was like, well, why not? I mean, why, why, why that? Because that would be what an amazing movie it would be if that was the choice to be like, it is about this guy who was going to kill her. They have this, this, this like powerful rebirth reconciliation of their love, but you can't escape because that would be sort of this faded thing of like, once, once he made the decision to do this, even though he turned back on that, it's like, it's almost like the grim reaper. Like there is, there is a soul that it is coming for one way or another. Like I would have bought that movie. I don't know that I like that movie more, yeah. but I would have bought that as like, we well, yeah, had that actually, there's a kind of um, uh, justice. Isn't the word I'm thinking of, or, but there, there's something that makes sense about that, that narrative arc and that he's destroyed by this. And he's destroyed by this thing that he, that he ruined, you know, like that, that would have worked. And, you know, all, all the way up, through when the woman in the city comes and I was like man is this going to end with him killing her and it's like that would be a very dark ending if, if like both women are dead by the end of this so yeah, yeah I mean director, I far prefer this ending different director might have done that um, you know I think about Double Indemnity and Billy Wilder maybe Bill, Billy Wilder would have done it uh, but I think one of the reasons why I think one of the many reasons why um, Renard doesn't is it is a song of two humans right and so I think for her to die and kind of in a sense punish him uh, for him to die and, and, and her to be left bereft, um, neither one of those would have been the outcome that the, that the story is about. Because the story is about the threat to a relationship that can then survive the relationship. And so you have to have the valleys in order to get to the peaks. And so and that's why I completely bought both of them surviving. But imposing upon him a period of really deep penance and, reg- and, and, and regret. Yeah. Because he gets um, both. You get the punishment and yes. then you get the reward and the salvation from that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, wow. Um, the last thing that I have that I ha- haven't talked about yet is, you know, just uh, the amazing performances from the two leads in this movie. Uh, Janet Gaynor wins wins the Best Actress Award, um, but it's it's more like an MVP award. Like, it's for all of her work um, in those two years. I think she was in two or three films that she was kind of recognized for. Um, I'm unfamiliar with George O'Brien, but he's great in this movie. He mm-hmm. transforms multiple times. His, um, I mean, there's so much necessary face acting in a movie like this and physical acting. And uh, he transforms multiple times, uh, both in terms of his look, his demeanor. Uh, there, I will say for both of them, there are moments where when I think back on this movie, I can hear their voices. Mm, mm. You know, it's like, that's how effective their acting is. And I think what Murnau is doing and maybe how he uses sound that like, like there, it's not even that I can hear them reading title cards because there's very little title cards between the two of them, but I can, but I feel like there's dialogue that I've heard, even though I haven't heard it. So um, I think that they're, I think both of those performances are amazing. I think it's interesting that one of the films that Janet Gaynor was in in that uh, two-year period was Frank Borzage's uh, Street Angel, which uh, stylistically owes a lot to, to Murnau. And then Borzage, he may not be a name familiar to a lot of people. He was actually a, quite a good, maybe minor, but quite good director. He later made a film, and I just made a connection. He later made a film called Moonrise, 
uh, a talkie. It, it's a very, it's a very good kind of a noirish film, but it definitely has resonances with with Sunrise. Um, the other interesting thing about Gaynor is that she uh, is nominated for an Oscar in her last and best remembered role in the first version of *A Star Is Born* uh, in 1937. Um, and that film was directed by William Wellman, uh, and William Wellman directed Wings, that won the first Best Picture. And of course, we saw William Wellman. Uh, William Wellman for us was uh, he directed um, Incident at uh, the Oxbow Incident. Oxbow Incident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got the, the final thing I want to I want to say, um, to Sam, is I, I want to give a little bit of a different perspective on the structure of the film. I agree with you; it has a tripartite structure. That's clear, three parts. But it's it's almost like what they call a chiastic structure. Because um, in the middle, you have the, uh, the time in the city. So before that, you have um, the evocation of them as children, the woman uh, from the city talking about the drowning. You have the cutting of the bulrushes. Uh, and then you have him almost strangling the woman from the city. Uh, and then he goes, then they go through the city. Uh, and then they have the, the, uh, the, the sense of them as children. And then on the, in the third act, you have all of those elements kind of repeated again, right? You, ha you, ha you have the drowning, you have the bulrushes, you have him almost strangling the woman from the city. So it's almost as though everything uh, repeats itself almost like a mirror effect and reverses what happened in the, uh, in, in the first act. So I, I think it's not only the three-part structure, but it's that kind of almost like, like I said, like a chiasm or a crossing uh, structure that is really um, powerful in the, in, in the film. So everything gets repeated and in a sense kind of reversed. Oh, I really like that. I had that that had not occurred to me. Uh, had not occurred to me at all. Uh, well, Barrett, this was <laughs> this was such a winner of a movie. Um, have you seen anything else by Murnau? I mean, there's only he doesn't have a lot of surviving films. Um, have you seen The Last Laugh? Yeah, a long, long time ago, I did see The Last Laugh. Um, and I also I had, I've seen Taboo, uh, okay. which was his final film with Robert Flaherty. Um, but I. I mean, those are good films, but there's nothing quite like this. I mean, this is clearly the apex of his career. Well, and it's interesting because he dies uh, in an automobile accident at like age 42. So conceivably, he could have been make, making movies well into the 50s. If yeah, it would have 60s. been really fascinating to see where he would have gone. Yeah, yeah. So I have to I have to uh, admit one of the strangest Google searches I did because um, I'm obsessed with F.W. Murnau uh, as well. I'm one of the things I'm obsessed with is his life story and his physical appearance. Um, so I think I mentioned this when we talked about Nosferatu that he's reported to be, so, you know, as short as six foot four and as tall as seven feet tall, um, which is interesting because part of his military service in World War One is uh, is as a uh, a gunner in a. Uh, in a in like a biplane gunner, which mm. seems like you don't it seems like you wouldn't want a very tall person in there. But then my my son pointed out you probably don't want that person in the trenches either because they're <laughs> going to be a pretty easy target. Which I thought that's a good point. So, good point. Um, so anyhow, the Google search I came up with is I was looking for pictures of Murnau, mm. um, and there is a picture of him standing next to Henry Matisse, mm -hmm. the uh, the French um, French twentieth uh, century French artist, and he is easily a head and a half taller than Matisse. Mm. So I was doing Google searches on halt. How tall was Henry Matisse? And I can't find an accurate depiction of Matisse's height. Cause I really want to figure out how tall Murnau is. Cause I can't accept that he lived into the 1930s and we, and he's, we talk about him like he is some mythical figure. Like there has to be, some, has to be some way we can figure this out, but he is, I mean, he is a like uh, Matisse. The top of Matisse's head goes up to like Murnau's chest. Like he is a enormously tall uh, thin man. Well, I I understand, Sam, that you're going to spend some time in Germany uh, next month, so maybe you can track down that information. <laughs> I will work on that. I will work on that. Uh, other things, uh, kind of housekeeping things. So we we did our 100th film last week. So uh, if if you go to uh, videostorepodcast.wordpress.com, I have updated my rankings. So I ranked all 100 films that we've watched, <laughs> uh, and I started clean. I didn't look back at my original mm -hmm. rankings. And what's interesting is there were definitely movies. I feel like the movies at the top sort of stayed at the top. Um, but there were also movies that, that over time have risen for me. Um, mm. You know, part of those are in effect, like a, a movie like out of the past jumped way up for me in part. We did that for film forum. So I feel like I had another revisit of that film and we had a good discussion about that. Um, some movies that, that were much higher in the initial rankings have, 
sort of dropped off. I think as other things have become more prominent to me. So there's obviously like a, a recency bias in some of these things, but mm. uh, it's a meaningless, uh, it's a meaningless project, but I was, it was worthwhile doing to, uh, to go through and think about those things. And what's exciting to me is that our 101st film, which does not appear here is sunrise, uh, a tale of, or a song of two humans, because I'm wrestling with how high do I put this movie? This is, this one is really, really, really special to me. And again, if you haven't seen this movie, you've got to go see it. And I'm sorry that we just spoiled so much of the surprises of this movie. But the, but we have, there's all kinds of stuff we didn't even talk about. That's right. Well, all right, Barrett, uh, that is all that. Oh, what do we what do you have for us for next week? I almost forgot to ask. Well, you know, Sam, I, I decided that um, I, we need to do something that somehow acknowledges the this great tradition of the silent film. Uh so we're going to watch Guy Madden's uh, The Saddest Music in the World from 2003. Um, and I don't know if any of our listeners are how familiar they are with Guy Madden, but uh, he's a very distinctive uh, uh, director who uh, his, uh, most of his films are homages stylistically to the silent and early talkie eras. And so my first Guy Madden film was The Saddest Music in the World. And uh, I have a really great affection for this film. So I think I'd love to, I haven't revisited it in a number of years. So I think it'd be fun to watch that together. And I know this, like a, maybe like a year ago, this was featured on Criterion, like a guy Madden was featured. There was on a whole Criterion. guy Madden thing. On yeah. Criterion. yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 I am aware of the title of this movie because of that, but I, this is not one that I watched. So I'm very excited to, uh, very excited to watch, uh, to watch this film. Barrett, uh, again, this goes without saying, thank you so much for recommending this film. Uh, this, this one is just a, this is a pantheon film for me. It, it, it's deservedly as high as it is on, uh, on the list that appears on. So thank you for recommending this. Thank you for the conversation. And we will be back next week to talk about the saddest music in the world in the video store.